Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Case of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hello, Mark Kenny here from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations. And of course, this podcast comes to you with the assistance of Policy Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Alan Beam has a new book out, and it's exceptionally good. You might remember we've had Alan Beam on the program before, and those pods have done unusually good business. People like to hear his views. Alan specialises in political and security risk evaluation, policy analysis and development, and he tries to make sense of the place where policy and politics interact. He had an almost three-decade career in the public service addressing profound security and strategic policy questions and went on to advise the climate change minister, Greg Combey, who was his chief of staff, and later Labor's foreign affairs spokeswoman, Penny Wong. But these days, he heads up the International and Security Programme at the Australia Institute, not to be confused with the very closely named Australian Studies Institute. So we're, um, we're, we're, we're dueling Australia Institutes here at the moment, Alan. <laughs> his, his new book is called No Enemies, No Friends. And the subtitle or the sub, yes, I suppose you call it subheading is Restoring Australia's Global Relevance. He's no enemy, but he is a friend of Democracy Sausage, and I'm delighted to have him here in the ANU studio. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much, Mark. It's wonderful to be back. And as I say, we've got uh, very closely named employers, Australian Australia Institute and the Australian Studies Institute. Let's go to this book because, I mean, some people will be aware of it. It's only just launched. Some listeners may have already uh, obtained a copy or, or, you know, attended one of the launches that you've done or whatever. But I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a sketch of the book in the sense of, I mean, this is kind of a variation, I suppose, in why did you write this book, but mm. but just a sense of what this book is. Well, look, for any of us who've been active in the field of foreign policy and national security policy, we're often left with um, a really big question, and I suppose it's a question about our own performance. Uh, and the big question that I've been trying to address over the last, really the last quarter century is why is it that we're so good at getting things so bad? It's a very perplexing question because 
we have an enormous amount of capacity in this country. We talk a lot about punching above our weight. Those of us who might have heard Anthony Albanese today speaking at the Lowy Institute would have heard him use exactly that expression. Alexander Downer, as foreign minister, used to use it all the time. Well, one of the things I've learnt, I think, is that if you get into the ring with a heavyweight, you get smashed. And I think that what often happens to us is that we don't really know what punching above our weight really means. Actually, the full saying is actually punching above your weight division, isn't it? It I mean, is. It's actually about saying you're sort of you're swinging more, you've got more more heft than uh, than perhaps uh, uh, you're, you, you, you should you, have, you that's look right. like you've got. That's right? right. But if you're a featherweight, you don't get in with a middleweight ever. And, um, no, ideally, no. No, you'll get, you'll get belted out of the ring. Yeah. And, you know, we're silly, I think, often in the way in which we represent ourselves, not only to ourselves, because I think we dissemble a bit to ourselves. There's a technical term for that. We bullshit to ourselves mm. a lot. Mm. Um, but we bullshit to everybody else as well. And I think we pay quite a high cost for that. Can I just stop you there for just for a sec? Because don't all nations sort of bullshit to themselves? I mean, don't all nations have their own set of myths you know that we, we can think of the the you know the, the US for example its frontier myths and and all of that and when you stack up their histories against those tropes that that sort of operate as their self identifiers they're very you know they're very rarely as good as they think they are so are we an orphan in that regard no we're not an orphan but what you find with uh, certain classes of other bullshitters is either they get away with it and we seldom do or their bullshit is actually a bit less than what they actually do and and what the, how they perform. And there are a number of countries in the world that, that do perform at quite a high level of technical international policy expertise. Uh, the Scandinavians are generally pretty good at that. Uh, in my opinion, New Zealand is actually pretty good at it too. They do a lot with very little. And I think that very often the US, for all its myths and its its sort of self-delusion, uh, gets away with an enormous amount of that because it has very substantial power. The problem we've got, I think, is that we also, on any measure, have very significant reserves of power, but we don't understand what the power is and we don't transact it into a way that actually delivers real relevance for us on the international stage. And that power, when you say we have significant power, are you limiting that to regionally or are you saying that globally we have a lot of power? And, and I suppose a follow-up to that, is that power a function of being a sophisticated, relatively wealthy, stable democracy with a lot of you know, very, I suppose, valued attributes that puts Australia in a good position? Is that, what, is that the kind of power you're talking yes, about? Yes, all of those things. You know, Morgenthau, in his great book, Politics Among Nations, and I mean, that's 1948, he published that. He set out the attributes of national power, and uh, I'm not going to go through them right now. I do know them, and there are eight of them. It's only on one of them that we actually are lacking, and that's population. Right. With respect to everything else that is an attribute of national power, we're right up there. And with population, we're 55th biggest population in the world. That's... Uh, that's not much. But we think of ourselves as a middle power. We talk to everybody as though we're a middle power. And economically, we... We're not. We're, we're not a middle power. But we're, we're what, 13th or 14th? We're 13th. Our, our economy is roughly the same size as the economy of Russia. Mm. And we, we never think of that. 
uh, just as Putin claims that he never thinks of Australia. So we never think of Russia as actually being a peer, mm. uh, at least economically. Uh, Russia is a peer of ours uh, with respect to its landmass. It's bigger than us, but, you know, as Paul Keating said, we're a continent and not many of those were given out. With respect to the nature of our, our society, we're a pretty inclusive society. I'd argue we could be much more so, but there are many much more divided societies than we are. We're a very well-educated society. We have enormous amenity in this country. Variably, four of our cities are amongst the most amenable and most habitable in the world, including the city in which we are having our conversation this afternoon. With respect to our universities, where we are in a university at the moment, which is certainly in the top 100 in the world, but there are five others in Australia, which on various uh, scoring systems are in the top 100 in the world. I mean, that is quite extraordinary power. Add to all of that that culturally, we also have considerable power. We might say, well, people like Sutherland and Melba are, are world-renowned names, but in things which are also very important dimensions of our culture, like sport, we are a very strong nation. Variably, we're around eight in the, eighth in the Olympics, for example. Mm. So we have an enormous amount of power, and we walk around with our eyes shut and our mouths open, just wondering what on earth we're here for. So, as I say, I've been puzzled by the question, why are we so good at getting things so bad? Yeah. So let's think about that. In terms of diplomacy or the, the project of uh, pursuing one's interests externally, how we go about that, how important is not just talking the talk but walking the walk? I mean, in a sense, does this get to the sort of crux of your argument, really, that there, you've listed a number of key attributes that we have or key strengths that we have, but there are also quite a few weaknesses we have, uh, and you, you kind of alluded to some of those. I mean, our failure to reconcile with First Nations peoples, to reconcile with our own past, our misogyny, our cultural cringe, and, and there are a number of others. These are things that the myths, you know, and as I say, we're no orphan in this regard, but the myths generally don't dwell on weaknesses, they dwell on strengths. How important is it if we are to project in the world and to start living up to the potential that we have for all of those other positives that we actually believe it ourselves and we make those changes? Yep. So talking the talk and then walking the walk should be coterminous. I mean, mm. that's just the nature of things. I think we have some very fundamental difficulties in knowing what talk we should be talking and actually then knowing what walk we should be walking. And for me, it comes down to a really quite fundamental problem that I think we've had in Australia ever since white settlement in 1788. And, and that is, we're not sure of who we are. And that's where the, the big issue of reconciliation with the First Peoples is such a cardinal one for us. Uh, if we can't resolve that, we have no way of working out who we are. Yeah, it's that sort of thing where if you can't square up to your past, how can you possibly square up to the future? Well, it's not actually just squaring up to your past, though that's one of the big ways in which you square up to your future. But it's squaring up to who you are. Mm. It's squaring up to your present you know, you look at yourself in the mirror as a nation and, and what do we see? Well, 
some of us see something that isn't there. Uh, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of us all? And we all think that we are, and yet we're not. We have not only some very dark parts of our own history, but we also have things that we've built up as part of our national myths, which would be wonderful if they were true, but they are imaginations. I mean, they're not lies. They're just imaginations. Well, I think, for example, the Anzac myth is one of the the biggest of all of them. Uh, The myth that we have equality and uh, in this country, the sort of egalitarian, the the so-called egalitarian myth, when in fact we are quite class-based. The myth that everybody in in Australia is equal—that's deeply mythic because you can ask any woman in Australia whether her prospects are the same as her brother's prospects might be, and they'll tell you straight away that they're not. Um, And that's why I identify misogyny as being quite a deep um, character flaw in the way in which we think about ourselves in Australia. So if you don't quite know who you are, it then becomes very, very difficult to know what you stand for, which is about walking the walk. And we have a lot of problems with that too. We, We use the word values all the time and we talk about it, but We do so, generally speaking, in a way which is either legalistic or in a way which is sentimental or romantic or both. We talk about mateship, just for example, and yet there is a critical community that makes up part of our total national societal estate, the First Peoples of Australia, who won't use the term mateship because mates are people with fair skin, blue eyes and fair hair. Mm. And... They feel excluded, as they should, by a term which is an inclusive term for an in-group, but an exclusive term for the out-group. And and so it's all of these sorts of things that I think play into the difficulty that we have in carrying ourselves as a nation in a way which would not only redound to our credit, which would be good, but would redound to our relevance in the world as a country which models the kind of world that we would like the world to be. Yes, that's a really interesting point. It's about um, it's about acknowledging where we came from and the mistakes and 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 uh, criminal acts and uh, uh, dis- uh, discriminations that have been baked into our culture and and un- understanding them and addressing them. So there's that in terms of our own confidence. I'm also interested in the idea though that. Nations that genuinely do project into the world and project good values into the world have to exemplify those values themselves. So there's the there's the evidence that we are that society which we are dictating to others they ought to be, and we don't do that, do we? No. I mean, for and 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 climate change would be a good example, and that mm. explains one of the reasons why we've been so tremulous and 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 tepid on that question if i can use a temperature term wrongly the fact is we've we've equivocated for so long on this and we've abandoned any ambition of global leadership of of global moral leadership on a question that has critical moral dimensions well look with just taking climate change and that's a an issue that i'm have been professionally very close to. I mean, it was, after all, the Gillard government that legislated some very important economic and industry steps that would be helping us now deal with climate change. But with respect to climate change, and I might say nuclear disarmament, just to take those two together, 
We've been a nation of ball tamperers. You know, it, it's deep in our psyche, I think, that with climate change, we like to distort um, our, our sort of putative successes in, in carbon reduction, uh, while at the same time flogging as fast as we possibly can uh, gas and coal exports, which in fact will add to the global burden in methane levels, which is much more dangerous actually than yeah, carbon. Too, yeah. And we do it not only with a straight face, but with a we do it with a twinkle in our eye and a smile because we think we can get away with that sort of nonsense. And we have got away with it in the sense that we've even done special pleading in those international negotiations and given a, 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 an easier ride, a, a less ambitious reduction. We got an easier table. we got an easier ride, but it ended up and is ending up now costing us an enormous amount. So there is a carbon tax anyway, and uh, the carbon tax is being paid by all by of these, us yeah. and by everybody else. Yeah, and. Um, I think very importantly with respect to the, the globe's carbon burden, uh, we think, and we've heard it only just this week from the Prime Minister, that we're a minnow in uh, in a sea of whales and so that China and India and other large developing countries have got a much greater responsibility than we do to, to address the problem. I've got to come back to the fact that we're the 13th richest country in the world. And the fact is that major global changes are affected by those who are wealthy and those who have power. And so we want to duck our responsibility. We want to hide behind the fact that we have the 55th biggest population. We don't want to admit that per capita, we are far and away the biggest emitter in the world. And on nuclear disarmament, for example, we hug ever closer to the nuclear deterrent of the United States while walking faster away from anything that we might do with effective nuclear disarmament. And that has come back, I think, to bite us since only in the last three weeks we've had President Putin threatening the use of nukes if he doesn't get his way in conventional warfare terms in, in the Ukraine. So talking the talk, walking the walk, these are pretty important things to our own future, and yet, in my view, we don't do that because of what I have described in this book as a set of pathologies that we simply haven't come to terms with. Yes, I think that's a very good point. Let's take a quick break, then we'll be back in a moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. We were talking about uh, walking the walk and, uh, and, and the Australia projecting to the world. 
Another issue that interests you is the securitization of everything in, in our politics. And we see this quite a lot. We've been seeing it for years, I suppose. We saw it with the intervention in the Northern Territory. We've seen it with the appointment of Lieutenant General uh, John Fruin uh, in terms of the sort of uh, vaccine czar or whatever it was that he was called. We've seen it in the bushfires, of course. We see the defence forces being wheeled out uh, in the floods. These are necessary things, of course. These are national emergencies. So there's some of the ways in which it's done, but but there's a lot of uh, national security, uh, you know, flavouring in the whole political culture at the moment as we head towards this election. Yeah. Look, securitisation uh, is, I think, one of the ultimate expressions of political cynicism. Uh, it works in a very simple way. It's a con trick. You, you find an issue that you can't deal with. So you immediately slap the word war in front of it. Um, so... Suddenly, you're not just dealing with poverty or you're not dealing with child sexual abuse. You're not dealing with a pandemic. You're dealing with a war. Mm. And so we're going to have a war on any of those three things. Like, like Bush's war on drugs, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, our war on child sexual abuse in the Northern Territory. Our, I mean, we do it all the time. And why you do it is because as a government, you haven't got a clue as to how to deal with it. Uh, and so... You turn it into a massive problem designed to frighten the electorate, actually, and then you address it using all of the means and instruments of war. You use legislation, and that's what we've done with, with 9-11 and terrorism. Before 9-11, we had a perfectly effective national counterterrorism system. It came out of the Hilton bombing, for those who remember that far back. And under that, we treated acts of terror as being criminal acts. Well, now we've had 85 instruments of legislation, I think. We've over-legislated this to hell because no other country in the world has done anything like what we've done in legislating against terrorism, all of it for political effect. And each one of those increments has, has constricted the rights of Australians and other people coming here mm. each time. And Each it's time, like this, this, this it, tightening of, of freedoms. That's exactly right. It's narrowed people's rights, while at the same time radically complicating the way in which our uh, security services go about doing their job. So they find themselves in court um, and running the really very, very uh, powerful risk of having their actions ruled as being illegal. Well, they become almost not just instruments of law enforcement, but instruments of politics in a sense. Indeed. Because it becomes the exercise of politics through this uh, this, this securitisation or this creating a war environment in, in relation to that particular field. I think that's absolutely right. That is the effect of politicisation of our military and the effect of politicisation of our police services. Um, I mean, the Prime Minister went to the Northern Rivers just this week and, and quite properly he lamented the devastation. But the thanks that he extended were to the 900-odd personnel from the Australian Defence Force. He did not mention the thousands of SES workers and, and local government council workers who'd been slaving away for a month in trying to address the problems of rising waters. This shows you what happens when your mindset wraps itself around 
dramatising the problem and then reaching for the wrong instruments to deal with it. Well, we saw Peter Dutton actually say on Insiders uh, that he won't, quote, tolerate any criticism of the uh, of the armed forces, of the armed services in their relief efforts. It's fair enough to be loyal to your department, I suppose, or mm. your portfolio, but the idea of not tolerating it, let's, let's give him a leave pass and say, okay, that wasn't a particularly good choice of words, but... It speaks, and I think this is what you're getting at, it speaks of a relationship that is too close for a start between the government of the day and the armed forces yeah. or the or the defence services. Yes, I think it is too close. It's not too close emotionally, I think. It's too close intellectually. It's too close from a political point of view, a policy point of view. It shows that of all of the instruments that we have available to us in a very wealthy country with an enormous range of capacities and capabilities, we can only think of one. But the instruments that the federal government has at its disposal aren't as great, of course, and this is being shown up. This is sort of a question about the functioning of our federation. We see that when these things happen, whether it be the bushfires, whether it be you know health controls during the pandemic, or these this this flood emergency on the eastern seaboard, you know it's quite a limited range of options for the federal government to take direct action. But we see ourselves as a nation, and we expect our federal governments to do things. Uh, someone reminded me today of Kevin Rudd during the floods uh, back when he was. Prime Minister, I think, you know, getting out there and, you know, there was vision of him with his trousers rolled up and he was carrying a chair or something above his head. He was shin deep in water. Uh, Morrison didn't really have that possibility, at least this time. I mean, he had the famous, I don't hold a hose, mate, you know, excuse for going after Hawaii. But this time he's in COVID isolation uh, for the first, first period of this. But the government really didn't do too much. No one else stepped in, which mm. is sort of amazing in itself. But when it does step in, and you know this sort of predated Morrison actually going there, but when it does step in, it really is to just pull that one big lever, which is to send in the defence forces. Well, that's true. That's that's that seems to be the way in which I mean they've got that in a checkbook basically. Well, but the checkbook is the answer. I mean, people think that the that federally and constitutionally the Commonwealth government lacks power. Well, it's not my view. The Commonwealth Government has got the thing that really matters, which is the checkbook. It's got the money. And it, it has an enormous range of untested powers also under the Constitution. It can act in terms of the security and safety of the nation. That's a constitutional head. It's never really been tested because we think about it in terms of insurrections and strikes and things mm. like that. But human security is the heartland of national security, and um, and that being the case, I'm not apologising for that view, then the Commonwealth has the ultimate responsibility for the human security of Australian citizens. It has enormous power, in my view. It's a question of whether you seek to exercise it, and when you can, whether you can exercise that power with the cooperation and in concert with the others who also have power, like the premiers and like shire presidents and heads of professional organisations and heads of unions and so on. And all of those people have been doing vast amounts of work uh, on the ground in flooded areas, trying to coordinate this relief effort, rescuing people, you know, setting up relief centres. Uh, the logistics of this has been absolutely huge and, of course, very, very dangerous work as well. Yeah. Volunteers. And they, they were the people that were sort of the whole kind of civic fabric of the nation kind of got, got glossed over so that there could be this reference to the Defence Forces yeah. because, what, 
they'd pulled that lever and therefore that was the bit that they the only bit they seemed to care about. That's exactly right. It was like the call out during the the uh, bushfires. And in a way, I mean we've been talking about this for a few minutes now, but in a way it's an allegory of what I'm trying to address in no enemies no friends that we have such a a very limited view of what we're able to do. Yeah. And it's because we don't know what we're able to we do. sort of self-edit, uh, low ambitions, and therefore we don't have to sort of be too disappointed. Exactly right. You know, the vast majority of, of our politicians would have no idea what the heads of the Constitution are. Um, I certainly know that they have no idea about most of the legislation that they enact themselves. Um, we've, seen, we've seen that when some of them come into the chamber and, you know, sort of, you know, mumble sort of voce to each other, uh, what are we voting on? <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you, you find it in things like the relationship between uh, the executive of government and the public service, for example, um, where minister after minister would have no idea that the, the responsibilities of the heads of the public service are actually legislated yeah. and that the the minister's principal policy advisor is not some turkey who walks around in his office pretending to be his principal policy advisor, to which the chief of staff might aspire, and I say that with feeling. <laughs> um, it is it is actually the secretary of the department. And so knowing what your powers are is critical to your ability to exercise them. And it brings me back to how we stand internationally. We don't have a sound understanding of what our power is, and that's a bit different from powers, of course, but mm. we have no sound understanding of that. And because of that fatal flaw, I think, we are variably racist, misogynistic, insecure, dependent, isolated, and, of course, almost totally lacking a capacity for self-affirmation, which is what the cultural cringe really is. Yes, it makes me think of the uh, the axiom to convince the world first, you must convince yourself. Mm. And we probably haven't really gone about doing that. Look, we haven't got much time left. Another uh, issue that comes up uh, in your book that you address, which I'm particularly interested in, is the Thucydides trap, <laughs> yes. uh, as it is often referred to, this idea that when a an existing power, existing dominant power, uh, is to be competed with by an emergent power, that war is or conflict is inevitable. Uh, you, you discuss this. Yes. Um, perhaps I could invite you to do so here. The Thucydides trap is acute political science expression for a broader phrase, which is that uh, war between superpowers or between states that are in one way or another a, a hegemon uh, is inevitable. And uh, that is uh, based on uh, what I think is a mistranslation of one sentence uh, in Thucydides' great history of the war between Sparta and Athens. And um, I can understand why the word inevitable was used in the translation, and I wouldn't have given whoever translated it zero out of ten for the quality of their translation from classical Greek. But a much closer reading of the text, and, and this is very important when you're going to use a word like inevitable, mm. uh, is to see what Thucydides actually said and not to leave it to some translator. It's a basic rule in, in, in the law. You yeah. go to the text. Yeah. And uh, I took the trouble to do that to find that, the, well, you can't translate the word inevitable into Greek, really. Uh, it's very much a Roman concept. But what Thucydides actually said is that Athens and Sparta were because of their leaderships, constrained by their leaderships to enter into war. And the whole point of the history 
obviously you said it is, is to make a fundamental difference from what went before him, which was that war was caused by the gods um, or by pestilence and floods and things like that. Thucydides said, no, that's not where war comes from. War is a question of the agency of leaders. And it's around the issue of agency that my book really swings. I'm saying that Australia has all of the powers to exercise considerable and effective agency globally, but that's not what we're choosing to do. We look out and we see everybody else, and when things go well, we make up a myth, and when things go badly, we blame everybody else. In fact, what we need to do, and what successful nations always do, is exercise their own agency. And we've got plenty of it, but in order to realise it, to, to give it power, we've got to understand and deal with the constraints on our agency, and then we've got to have that conversation nationally which says, this is how we look and this is what we stand for. Right. And this, and, and so your interpretation of it or reinterpretation of it, understanding what Thucydides was saying, is, is probably to replace the word inevitable with constrained to or I, I would uh, I certainly had a uh, I have translated it for the the benefit of those who uh, are less familiar with classical Greek exegesis than I am uh, I did start my university career in that field and um, it weighs heavily upon me mark I might say well I'm uh, not going to contest you here <laughs> I mean. but but the the word that Thucydides actually uses is a word which means jail or it's related to the word for a jail and that's why I probably would translate it as you know the the actors were constrained by their own thoughts and their own deeds. And probably, I think, to give it its 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 contemporary application, are constrained by their own sabre-rattling, mm. their own, uh, the atmospherics that have taken them to a particular point. Yes. Uh, and we saw this with, with Putin, mm. um, you know, who we've talked about already or, or referred to already. You line up all your troops on the border, you make all these threats, and, and, and when the bluff doesn't work, well, you, you sort of roll in. That's I mean, right. There is. And, and ultimately... Ultimately, there is a choice. Yeah. I mean, in 1918, uh, say by about July, August 1918, an armistice, in other words, a draw, was on the cards. Um, eventually, though, the Kaiser had to exercise a choice, and it was unconditional surrender. Mm. Um, in between August and November, there were a lot of choices that could have been made. Unconditional surrender wasn't inevitable, but the choices weren't made at the right time. Right. And so we find with Putin, he's made a series of really, I think, devastatingly bad choices, bad strategic choices. He still has more to choices to do, though, or to make. Yeah. It's just that it would appear at the moment he doesn't want to make them until it's too late. And just quickly, have you been surprised, as many people have, with the way in which it has unified the West? I've been surprised by a number of things, actually. I was very surprised that Putin resorted to armed force. Um, because I thought he'd already run, won the argument. I was very surprised by the strength of the opposition of the Ukrainians. Um, I was not surprised initially at the fact that there were quite serious divergences within NATO on what might be the best way to go. Um, I have been surprised at the unity of the West in the economic levers that they've decided 
to to pull. And I'd have to say I'm quite worried about the consequences of that unity on the need to exercise those levers because in very important respects it is a very serious breach, I think, of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which underpins what we like to call the the, the global rules-based order when the reserve currency of the world, the dollar, is made not available to Russia. Mm. And um, it's not that I want to do any favours for Russia, thank you very much, but I would really like to think through what is involved in denying the SWIFT banking system to Russia and what it means to isolate Russia economically in quite the way we have. If that were to bring about a collapse of a system and the birth of a parallel system, and we already find China and Russia talking to each other, I think that that would be a serious consequence of not thinking through what you're actually doing. Yeah, that's true, but there are no easy answers here either. Because no, no. I mean, what do you do when one nation uses brute force to roll into another nation? Uh, and and, you're, and because of the unique circumstances, you're, you're constrained, to go back to that word, not to uh, intervene directly. So so everything short of being in the in the theatre is every other lever has kind of been pulled. And as you say, some principles have been thrown overboard, but there's a pretty big principle here as well, innocent people being slaughtered a democratic country or a proto-democratic country, a sovereign country being illegally invaded, unlawfully invaded. Uh, you know, these are these are pretty profound values and principles as well. So no, no easy answers. No, I agree with that. And yet we've seen that breach in the international order, um, in particularly in Africa, over the last 30 years. Uh, we haven't shared all that many tears about what's happened in Africa. No, no. We've shed tears. Not what happens to the Palestinians or no, what's happening in Gaza no. or what's happening in... No, I mean, we're shedding tears for a part of the world that we're familiar with and where the, the pictures remind us of ourselves. Um, and, and I think that this also requires us to think very hard. I mean, we haven't worked the UN in anything like the way that we might have, mm. particularly a country like Australia. Um, if we think, as I think we're right, that we depend, as everybody else does, on the integrity of the, the global rules-based order, then wouldn't you think we would be making a very big noise about the need both to to substantiate those rules right now and also to make sure that everybody's in them? Just look at the opportunity that the vote in the UN last week would create for a country like Australia. There were 40 abstentions on the major vote, um, which was designed to sanction Russia. 40 abstentions. What that indicates to me is there is a huge target there for countries like Australia and our friends. And I don't just mean the the, the Western democratic countries. I mean our friends in Asia to, to look at that enormous target and say, well, these people evidently don't think the rules relate to them all that much because they're amb- they're certainly ambivalent about mm. Russia's position. Why aren't we talking to them about the need for a global set of rules? Why don't we bring them into the camp as yes, well? Why haven't we been renovating the rules? As China has been arguing for a while in relation to the WTO, G7 and things Indeed. like that. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a really good point. But we're going to have to end there, Alan. Uh, there, there, I, I deliberately haven't gone through in a kind of uh, structural way trying to pick out something from every chapter or whatever because I wanted to just make this point to readers. This is a terrific a terrific book, really well written, uh, really well argued. Um, I think people will get hold 
hold of it and they'll read it and they'll be very glad they have. Uh, and I want to thank you for coming in, you know, talk, talking about that and a few ideas that spin off it from yep. what's going on in politics uh, and, and the world today. Thank you very much, Mark. It's lovely to think a book like this could spin into a conversation like this. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I think there'll be plenty of conversations around it. That's Democracy Sausage for this week, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again very soon. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.